Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Before we start, just wanted to give you a heads up that this episode includes graphic descriptions of violence and discusses a suicide. If you or someone you know needs support, we've got links to resources in the episode description. A few months into our investigation, in late 2022, I get a call. Hello? Can you hear me now? Yes, hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, I got the other headphones I have ain't working that good. The connection isn't great, but the call is a breakthrough. I was in Sacramento for like about like two, two or three years off and on. This man isn't at Sacramento's new Folsom prison anymore, but he is still in prison. I wrote to Joel Uribe because Sergeant Kevin Steele mentioned him in his memo, that one he sent to the warden shortly before he was banned from prison grounds. Now Joel is calling me because he just got my letter five minutes earlier. In my letter, I didn't mention anything about Steele or the memo, but before I bring it up, Joel starts talking about Steele. I remember I had two, uh, Sergeant Skills coming in and yelling at the field saying, why didn't you guys call me? Joel is telling me about the first time he met Sergeant Steele, May 2017. Joel was in the hospital. You see, the pictures of me in the hospital, when I may not, it's like something blood. I was bleeding a lot. I was able to get a video of Joel in the hospital. It was actually taken by Sergeant Steele. This is Sergeant Steele. I'm recording inmate Uribe, which your CDC number. Steele has the camera trained on Joel, who is lying in a hospital bed with a blood pressure cuff on his arm and monitors taped to his bare chest. Blood has seeped into the gauze pads under his head. I want you to tell me in your own words what happened. Um, I was in my cell and... At one point, Steele swings the camera around to the right side of Joel's shaved head. And you can see there's still an open wound in his skull. I still got the scar on my head. On the phone, Joel tells me officers put him in the hospital that day. They broke my ribs. They broke his ribs. lost my hearing on one of my ears. And he lost hearing in one of his ears. At any point, like, have you pursued uh, litigation? Have you tried to, you know, get any other remedy? I've been trying to, and I've been trying to see if I can have 60 seconds remaining. It's going to shut off any minute. Can you call back, or do you have to go? Yeah, I'll call back right now. Okay, thanks. Bye. Okay, bye. Test, test. Years before Officer Valentino Rodriguez died, years before Sergeant Kevin Steele met Valentino's father and joined him on his mission, the sergeant had already begun gathering evidence. Evidence that he'd one day cite in that memo. 
evidence of the times he felt the institution had broken its promises to officers and the public. I'm Suki Lewis, and this is On Our Watch, Season 2, New Folsom. It is currently about 2.46 on Wednesday morning. On May 3rd, 2017, at UC Davis Hospital in Sacramento, Sergeant Kevin Steele interviewed Joel Arebe around 2.45 in the morning and then in greater depth around 12.20 in the afternoon after he received medical treatment. You'll hear audio from both. Inmate Uribe, have I told you anything to say? No. In the video, Joel's clean-shaven. He's got dark brown eyes, and tattoos cover his abdomen and creep up his neck and face. I want you to tell me in your own words what happened. I was in my cell and... Joel tells Steele it all started when officers told him he was moving to a housing block in a different building. They go, you gotta go. And I go, look, man, I already know what's up, man. I go, what do you mean when you say that? Um, I already knew they were going to fuck me up. How do you know that? Because of everything that's been going on with Gomez. We knew it was retaliation. And, uh, and when you say Gomez, you're talking about Officer Gomez? Yeah, the one that got assaulted. By An officer named Joseph Gomez had been assaulted by a different incarcerated man about a week and a half earlier. Joel says officers thought he had something to do with it because he'd gotten in an argument with Gomez. And Joel was convinced this move was being orchestrated as a cover to get him out of his cell so they could beat him up. I'm just going to get it out the way, Don. Get what out of the way? Get the beating out the way. And they were like, "Mm, it's too funny, it's too funny, don't, man. And uh, Other inmates were telling you not to come out of your cell? Not to come out. Joel says the circumstances of the move seemed strange. It was 7 o'clock at night. And not only that, he was set to be transferred to a different prison shortly. Why go to the trouble of moving him and all his stuff twice? But Officer Eric Chenette and another officer came to take him to another housing facility. Chenette came, chain cuffed me, walked me to the cage. Chenette's a big guy, about 5'9 and 240 pounds. Joel's quite a bit smaller, two inches shorter and at least 80 pounds lighter. And it's important to know that because of problems with his back, Joel walked with a cane. He was shackled at the ankles, and his wrists were cuffed to a waist chain. And we walked all the way over there. And then when we got in front of the block... And you were going from B facility to A facility. Let me take a minute to describe the layout of the prison so you can picture what's happening here. There are three main yards or facilities, A, B, and C, that are all similarly designed. Each facility has eight housing blocks that can hold around 120 people each. These housing blocks are further subdivided into sections. They also each have their own administrative offices, dining hall, etc. Those eight blocks are organized around a central outdoor yard, kind of like the petals of a flower. So to get from B facility to A facility, Chanette, holding Joel's arm, had to walk quite a ways. And two of Chanette's partners followed behind, one of them pushing a cart with Joel's belongings on it. As they got to the gate, a couple of other officers joined in the escort. 
you know when you gotta come in through that gate? You come yep. in this way. And the big gate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The group filed through a number of locking doors and security checkpoints that feed into the rotunda of the housing block, which you walk through to get into the housing sections or administrative offices. The first window you see to the office, they put me on that little concrete pillar where the door comes like this. What do you mean put you on? What does uh, that mean? He like, like said, stand right here in front of the concrete thing. With your facing the, con- you're yeah. facing the wall, not facing the wall. And, and Joel says Shanette took his cane and handed it to another officer. Did he grab your cane because you were attempting to use it? No. As soon as he did that, he spit on the floor, and he just socked me. He socked you, meaning he like, went to his fist. Punch? Yeah, he punched me. Where did he hit you at? Like right here. In your ear? Looks like you're pointing towards your forehead yeah. area or your head, face? Yeah, and then... I fell down to the ground. I fell on my. I was laying on my right, on my right side, but I couldn't lay on my stomach because I was like, the concrete wall was holding me up, and they were just stomping my head, man, socking me, and then I just seen the blood coming down. I'm like, oh man, they're gonna kill me. They're gonna kill me. Then I just felt the crack, crack, and then uh, where was that crack at? Right here. And just for reference, you're referring to this your chest area, right? Yeah. At some point, they stopped. They put Joel in a holding cage. He says he was in pain and throwing up, but he refused treatment. Finally, he did get assessed by medical staff, and he told them he had a back spasm and had hit his head on the doorknob. When you told him that, was that true? No. Why did you say that? Uh, Because I was scared, man. I'm not going to lie, I was scared. Scared of... They're retaliating because there were still a grip of seals there. When he got to the hospital, escorted by two correctional officers, initially, Joel told doctors the same thing about the doorknob. It wasn't until Sergeant Steele arrived and told the other officers to leave that Joel changed his story and gave the explanation you just heard. Okay, we're going to go ahead and conclude this. It is now 12.50 on the same day Wednesday, we're going to conclude this interview. Joel was diagnosed with a concussion, three fractured ribs, and he received four sutures to close up the wound on his head. This seems to be working okay. Let's just kind of scooch together so that we both are... On mic, my co-reporter Julie and I are in the studio together to go over some stuff. We've gotten hundreds of pages of documents from CDCR about Joel's case and more than a dozen audio recordings. What are you pulling up? So this is the CDCR recordings that we got that are associated with the case in which Joel Uribe ended up in the hospital and was very injured. The tape I want to play for Julie, it's a little scratchy. It's from a recording of a prison phone call Joel made to his mother, Juana Lopez, about 10 days after the incident. And they start talking about Sergeant Kevin Steele. Like, like I was telling you before, look, mm-hmm. I cool with Lieutenant Steele because she's like, no, no, I am, I am. Yesterday, I apologize. It's clear from their call that Juana has also talked to Steele. And it sounds to me like she kind of went off on him. She was angry and scared for her son. Are you in a safe place? Because he's calling me when in a safe place. 
Joel tells her Sergeant Steele is protecting him. Terry Steele goes, I don't work here to protect my own. I work here to protect everybody. If I'm following the rules and following the laws and I'm supposed to be doing this, then my partner should be doing this too. There's no code of silence here or nothing like that. The code of silence. It's a term used for an unspoken agreement between correctional officers that they won't report misconduct or turn on each other. It's officially banned, but it still happens. I was like, thank you, man. I appreciate that. You know? And he's for real, mom. And he, I, know, I know that's why I apologize, but he understands from where I was coming from. Because I'm, I, even he knows this was bullshit. Coming across this call where Joel talks to his mom about Steele way back in 2017 felt like finding one of Steele's footprints in the snow. But that's just interesting to me because, like, this this term, code of silence, is not a term that I have ever heard Joel use. Like, I don't feel like that. Mm. Like, he is, to me, it feels like he is quoting him because that's a term that Steele would use because he knows about the code of silence and everything. Um, So I was just like, that's... And, it, you know, so I'm not here to just protect my home. I'm here to protect everybody. That's That fits with everything we know and have mm-hmm. heard about him. And it's also, like, at this point, it feels like he still believes it, right? Like, this is in 2017 or whatever, right. and he's saying there's no kind of silence. Like, it's, you know, he feels like he can protect Joel and things will be figured out. Hmm. You can trust, still trust the system. While we've heard a lot about Steele from Val Sr., Part of what Julie and I are trying to understand and retrace are the steps that led Steele, a sergeant who trusted and supported this institution, to become the man who sent that explosive memo, hoping to bring it down. We've gone over his memo many times, each time peeling back another layer of evidence and comparing it with the evidence we've been able to gather. I'm Sergeant Steele. This is Sergeant Steele. It is the... 20th of July. It's about a little bit after 8 o'clock, approximately 10 after 8. On and the through these records and tapes, it is Tuesday the 16th. We catch more glimpses of Steele. This is Sergeant Steele. ISU. 19th of August on a Friday morning. And we learn that Steele was often the guy who did use of force interviews. The department has this policy that if someone in prison gets really badly hurt or alleges they were badly hurt by a guard, an officer, someone not involved in the incident, has to interview them on camera within 48 hours to document their injuries and ask them about what happened. In fact, you've already heard Steele doing one of these interviews in an earlier episode. That was Steele who initially talked to an incarcerated man that we called C., the guy in the psychiatric services unit who says officers handed him a noose. Uh, you made the allegation, you, while trying to hang myself, the COs came in and smashed my face into the wall. Can you tell me about that? What you mean? So Steele had this really direct interaction with incarcerated people who'd been injured, where he'd take down their allegations firsthand. Of course, this is also how he met Joel Uribe. But it wasn't Steele's job to figure out if those allegations had merit or if the use of force was justified. After Steele interviewed someone like Joel in the hospital, the officer's reports and any photos or evidence would get kicked to higher-ups to decide whether it needed further investigation. 
If they thought it did, they'd call in investigators from outside New Folsom to do the follow-up. Special agents from the Office of Internal Affairs would be tasked with investigating if officers broke policy, which could mean discipline, or broke the law, which could mean criminal charges. Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. Today is September 19, 2017. Time is practice 619. <clears throat> In Joel Uribe's case, Office of Internal Affairs Special Agent Grant Parker was assigned to look into Joel's allegations. You comfortable? Yeah, yeah. You good? Just myself, yeah. Okay. In September, about four months after the incident, the special agent sat down to interview Officer Eric Chenette, the one who'd been walking alongside Joel. In California, correctional officers like Chenette are peace officers, so they're protected by the Peace Officers' Bill of Rights, which means going into this interview, he's got the right to know what it's about ahead of time, and his union lawyer is in the room with him. Do you recall that incident? Uh, yes. Okay. So give me your version of that incident. Yes, from the beginning? Uh, right. Let's go from, uh, yeah, whatever your beginning is, we'll take it from there. Okay, um... Jeanette says as they were moving Joel to a different unit, everything was going smoothly. But you have a lot of a holding with my right hand, his left, like tricep, tricep elbow area. Right. Until they got through the door and walked into the rotunda of the housing block. And then out of nowhere, uh, Uribe just turns around, uh, pulls away from my grip, turns around, hits me with his, his cane. I uh, pushed him, I was able to push him down. When he fell down on the ground, did he fall on his on his back, on his stomach? Uh, on his head. I know that. Oh, on his head? Right. Okay, can you, can you tell me one side or the other? Uh, I really don't. Forehead? Shanette says he also slipped and ended up on the ground where Joel kept lashing out. He's still hitting me, kicking me, you know, hitting me with his, uh, I'm trying to get the cane away. Hitting me with his cane, I'm trying to get the cane away. I punched him two to three times. While he was on the ground? While we were on, both on the ground. Oh, okay. Another officer or officers arrived and helped him hold Joel down. I was able to get the cane away. Then C.O. Brewer comes in and um, pins his upper body. I'm pinning his lower body. So to recap, Shanette's version is that they walked inside the housing unit. Out of nowhere, Joel Uribe hit him with his cane. Shanette pulled him to the ground. Joel landed on his head, and then Shanette punched him a couple times to get the cane away. And then they got Joel under control, and it was all over. The special agent doesn't ask Shanette anything about Officer Joseph Gomez, who'd been assaulted about 10 days before the incident with Joel. His questions were focused on the use of force that day. The special agent talked to the other officers involved, too, and we won't play you all of their interviews. But what is important is these noticeable discrepancies in how officers remembered the incident. 
For example, no one can agree on which direction Joel was facing when he was on the ground. He was on his back. He has his, has his cane and he's face down on the ground. Yes, sir. He's landing, he's on his back. Uh, he was on his stomach. So face, face down. Yes. To me, this is key because remember, Joel is shackled at the ankles and the waist. If he's on his stomach, he'd barely be able to move, let alone pose a threat. And if the only force was two or three punches from Shanette, how did Joel get those injuries? A head injury needing stitches, a concussion, loss of hearing in one of his ears, and three broken ribs. The officers who used force on Joel also wrote reports. But what stood out to me reading through them is that they're totally inconsistent. Officer Eric Shanette's report doesn't mention Officer Camacho or Officer White using force. Officer Brewer's report mentions Officer White using force, but does not mention Officer Camacho using force. Officer White's report mentions Officer Camacho using force, but not Officer Brewer. And Officer Camacho's report does not mention Officer Brewer or Officer White using force. Now, that may sound like one of those logic puzzles you get on the SAT, but even after prison supervisors asked some of the guards to clarify these reports, the picture of who actually did what remains confusing. CDCR did not respond to questions about this case. My attempts to contact Eric Shanette over email were unsuccessful. The oversight agency that monitors prisons did review this investigation and found no evidence that officers planned to beat Joel. They said Shanette did have bruises on his chest and legs from the cane, and they speculated that Joel could have broken his ribs when he fell on an officer's boot. In the end, CDCR's internal investigation didn't find that the officers did anything wrong, and none of them were disciplined. Joel, however, was. At a disciplinary hearing a few months after the incident, Joel was found guilty of assaulting a peace officer with a weapon, the cane, and he was sentenced to 42 months, three and a half years in the shoe, solitary confinement. He says he served more than a year of that before prison officials decided to release him from solitary. I have a call from Joe Arribe, an inmate. I just want to point out that Joel is taking a risk by talking to me as is anyone who's still incarcerated. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Officers can listen in and hear what they are alleging. And Joel doesn't have another steal around to protect him. After the incident, Joel was referred to the DA for assault with a deadly weapon, the cane, which could have meant a whole new prison term. The documents that we obtained show that the charges were dropped in the, quote, interest of justice. As we spoke in that first call, Joel tells me that was because Steele intervened. Within the first two weeks, Sergeant Steele pulled me on and told me that uh, I'm dropping the gear referral because I already know what's going on. I know you didn't do nothing. I know you had nothing to do with this. And that's the part I can do for you. And I said, man, I appreciate that. And he gives me another clue to Steele's character. Long after the incident, Steele kept in touch with Juana Lopez, Joel's mom. You used to make sure, hey, yeah, no, your son's okay. You would call and make sure I'm okay. Joel says while he was in solitary, serving out his shoe sentence, Steele would come by and check on him. Do you think your mom might talk to me as well? Yeah, she will. He gives me his mom's number. 
and I want to call her to hear more about Joel, but also more about Steele, because this feels so unusual. A correctional officer keeping in touch with the family of someone in their custody. Yeah, she'll talk to you guys for sure. And uh, she knows a lot too what happened. Okay, that's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. In his memo, when Steele writes about what happened to Joel Uribe, he says there were, quote, many more of these cases where the man's injuries didn't match what officers wrote on their reports. While we don't know what incidents Steele was thinking of when he says there were many more cases like Joel's, we have been doing our own investigation. So here's our current list of cases updated. So We've been fighting to get records on all serious use of force cases from the Department of Corrections. In 2022, we sued, well, KQED's lawyers did, because CDCR was giving us these records so incredibly slowly. The agency still hasn't given us all the records we asked for. But with those we have been able to get, we've been building a database of incidents and the names of involved officers. And this one involves, look, who does it involve? Oh. Eric Jeanette Leach, who mm. was also involved in the Uribe incident. And that's also interesting when you just look at, like, the kind of order of events. Mm-hmm. It's again during an escort, and he doesn't want to go wherever they're going, mm-hmm. you know, placing him in a new cell. The rules around officer use of force are pretty clear. It's got to be proportional, so deadly force can only be used to overcome a deadly threat. Batons, pepper spray, even fists can be used to overcome resistance or to stop a threat. But once the resistance stops or the threat is gone, the officers also have to stop. They're not allowed to use force in retaliation or as a punishment. We've been able to get records of all the serious incidents that happened at New Folsom between 2014 and 2021. In all, according to CDCR, there were 27 of these incidents in which officers severely injured someone or used deadly force. Some of these appear totally lawful. Officers shooting to save someone's life who's being stabbed or using pepper spray grenades to stop an attack. But in about half of these incidents where the person ended up seriously injured, the circumstances followed a pattern. The reports note that the incarcerated person was resisting in some way. And despite the fact that in most of these cases, the incarcerated person was already in restraints, either handcuffed behind their back or handcuffed and shackled at the ankles, in many cases, officers used force so severe that the person ended up with really bad injuries ranging from head lacerations to broken noses and ribs. One man's femur was even broken. But in many of these cases, in the reports filed by officers, it's often unclear how the events they describe resulted in such severe injuries. For example, in one report, the officer wrote he used, quote, the minimal amount of physical force needed to place the incarcerated person on the ground. But the man ended up in the intensive care unit with broken ribs and extensive internal bleeding. Sometimes the officer's explanations were contradicted by other witnesses or evidence. And these are just the cases that we actually got reports for. Incarcerated people have told us about incidents that don't appear in the records at all, 
A lawsuit filed by one of these men who was incarcerated at New Folsom in 2016 alleges that his back was broken by officers and that officers poured urine and feces in his mouth. Medical records show that his back was fractured at some point and he required extensive surgery a year later. But CDCR refused to release documents related to the incident, saying it didn't qualify as a use of force that resulted in great bodily injury. In court filings, CDCR has denied the man's claims. We tracked down about a dozen men who were incarcerated at New Folsom who say they were beaten excessively by officers or as retaliation or that they witnessed these beatings. We also got interview tapes from CDCR of incarcerated people telling investigators like Steele what happened to them. Here are their voices. They would cuff us. They would handcuff us and beat us. I was handcuffed as I am now. With my hands behind my back, still handcuffed, and my legs. He was escorting me with his right hand. And then I seen him coming at me, and before I knew it, I was forced to the ground. He grabbed me, he slammed me on the floor. Dropping their knees down on my back and my spine. He kicked me in the face two times. Punches coming to the back of my head. Grabbing my hair, knocked out my teeth. I was pulled to the left and I was hit. I knocked out, but you still feel the blows. And then they threw me in the cage. And that's how they broke my back. Thought I was gonna die. I felt like I was dying, man. I was just like, you know what? I'm not gonna say nothing. If I did, they're gonna beat me again. I might die this time. We have also spoken to four current and former correctional officers who said when they worked at the prison, it was well known that some officers would beat up incarcerated people. They all said they witnessed at least one of these beatings firsthand, but did not report misconduct because they were afraid of retaliation. I just want to point out that out of the 800-plus guards who work at New Folsom, only about 50 were responsible for injuring people in their custody. And there were clear repeat offenders, names that kept showing up in the records. CDCR said they have a new process in place to investigate all complaints of employee misconduct. They also pointed to the new fixed cameras and body cams that they have installed at New Folsom. In the 27 serious use of force incidents that we have records for, however, there was almost always the same outcome. It's what happened with Joel Uribe's case. There was no discipline for the officers. And more often than not, the incarcerated person was punished. But there is one case that turned out differently from all the rest. It started, as so many of them did, with Sergeant Steele on camera in the hospital. Sergeant Steele, ISU, the date is the 16th of September. It's 2016, more than a year after Steele joined the ISU squad. A second officer is behind the camera. Steele is wearing his wire-rimmed glasses and checks his black military watch. It's approximately 10.30 on a Friday morning. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, Rodney Price, PO 20. In the video, you can see, again, a man lying in a hospital bed. His name, Ronnie Price. He's in a dark blue gown hooked up to an IV, a handcuff around his wrist. You can't see his face because it's been blacked out in the video. Go ahead, tell me what happened to you. Price tells Steele he transferred to New Folsom a week earlier, and officers were about to move him to a new cell with a cellmate. Price didn't want to go. 
That part of the audio is redacted, so it's not totally clear why he didn't want to go there. But you understand when an officer tells you, you got to go there, that's what you got to do. Yeah, I, I was willing to take the punishment in the hole. If, if I go in the cell, I get caught up, I'm going to spend years wishing I had went to the hole. What this sounds like to me is that Price is afraid he's going to get caught up in something that he'll regret. He'd even rather go to the hole or solitary confinement, which is the punishment for refusing the cell move, than go to this new cell. Yeah, you don't take it to the hole. Just cuff up. I said, oh, no problem. So I turn around and they opened the door and they, they cuffed me. But as the officers escorted him, he realized where they were going and it wasn't the hole. So I said, where y'all going? This, this ain't the way to the hole. So that's when they put the, the leg restraints on me. So now he was cuffed behind his back and his ankles were in shackles. I told him I'm not going in that jail. The guy this As they tried to physically move him along. You were pushing back? Yeah. You were resisting? Yeah. Okay. He says four officers grabbed him, two on each arm, and propelled him forward into the rotunda. That's when somebody stepped on my, my shackles in me. From behind? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he pushed me. He says an officer, or officers, stepped on the shackles around his ankles and pushed him to the ground face first. With his hands cuffed behind his back, he couldn't even break his fall. I'm going to have the camera come in here. What happened to your mouth? And I knocked out two false teeth and, and knocked out two of my own teeth. Two regular teeth? Yeah, teeth. four teeth. Just, okay. And when, when I raised my head up, spit the teeth out, somebody grabbed my head. You're on the ground. Yeah. You're on the ground, you raise your head up. And I'm raised up. Really blood to spit the teeth out. Somebody grabbed my head and slammed it. There's some kind of alarm going off, but you can hear Price say they slammed his head on the ground. Well, How did they do that? How did they slam the head? Well, I, when I raised up, somebody grabbed me by the head and slammed it into the ground. They're using their hands to push your head down on the ground? Is that what yeah. they use, their hands? Yeah. Okay. Steele asks a few more questions. Price confirms they took him to see medical and then by ambulance to the hospital. Do you have any questions? We're going to go ahead and conclude this interview. Steele checks his watch again. It's now that 10.48 on the 16th of September. Again, it is Friday. This concludes this interview. The very next day, according to internal reports, Price went into a medical emergency around 4.30 in the afternoon, and his heart stopped beating. Records show Steele attended his autopsy. The coroner ruled Price's death a homicide, but that just means death at the hands of another. It doesn't assign criminal liability or if the use of force was justified. Just like in Joel Uribe's case, special agents from the Office of Internal Affairs were called in to find out if officers violated policy or broke the law. Okay, we're on the record. The date is December 5th, 2017, times approximately 14.06 hours. Already, this is unusual. As you can hear in this interview, it's taking place in December 2017. That's more than a year after the incident happened. Most of these investigations are wrapped up much sooner. 
I'm Special Agent Justin Bolton. I'm in charge of this interview, and I'm going to be assisted by uh, Special Agent Malia Duarte. Also present is uh, in the hot seat today is an officer named Arturo Pacheco, one of the officers who escorted Ronnie Price to his new cell. As Bolden goes over Pacheco's rights at the beginning of the interview, there's another step he goes through that's less common. Okay, so um, Officer Pacheco, you're being interviewed regarding an incident where there are criminal proceedings pending or potential. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in court. The investigation into Price's death is criminal as well as administrative. So Pacheco has a right not to incriminate himself. Having been informed of your rights and having your rights in mind, are you willing to talk to us? I wish to invoke. Pacheco's voice is kind of faint there, but he says he wants to invoke his right to remain silent. This doesn't mean the interview is over, though. Bolden goes on to issue what's called a Liebarger warning. This is an administrative inquiry, and as such, you do not have the right to refuse to answer. What this means is that if Pacheco wants to keep his job, he has to answer their questions. But because it's a compelled interview, nothing he says in the interview can be used in a criminal case against him. It can only be used for internal disciplinary purposes. Do you understand? Yes. Okay, now we're going to do this. During the interview, Pacheco's story about what happened during the escort is different from Ronnie Price's. He says as they entered the rotunda of the unit... I just walked in and we took an approximate five steps in. By the time we got to the rotunda, that's when it made Price stop. And like this is five, towards the office? Towards the office. Okay. By and where the lockers are at. And there's lockers on what side of the... Left side. On the left side, okay. So are you next standing next to the lockers when inmate Price stops? We were, it was a tight fit. So yeah. once you walk in, I, my partner, I believe, was right behind me. Okay. And he stopped, and that's when he resisted. And he broke free of my grasp, my lunging forward. All I did was just immediately use force, because at that time, that's I could use my body weight right there and then. So I brought him down, and I didn't think nothing of it. So I brought him down. And I've listened to a lot of recordings of internal affairs interviews. A lot of times, they sound almost collaborative like the investigators are trying to help the officers tell their story. But this time, the internal affairs special agent takes a very different tone. He interrupts Pacheco. To use immediate force to overcome crisis resistance. Okay, so start right there. What is immediate force? Immediate force is... Are you referring to your white? I'm mean, referring to my card. Yes. Um, the use of force to respond without delay to a situation or circumstance that constitute an imminent threat. He lets Pacheco refer to his report, but he also really presses him. Okay, and in this rotunda, who was in there? That I know of, just me and my partner and the inmate and Officer Bigney upstairs. But you said that you know of. Would there be anybody that you didn't not know of? No, that's, that's it. Pacheco's report mirrors what he says here that he was the only officer to use force. But this question of who was there isn't just the special agent fishing. He's setting a trap. Over and over, the special agent circles back to this question of who else was there. And Pacheco keeps dodging and denying. Then, Bolden springs the trap. So what happened is that um, I talked to Officer Luna, and Luna said he was He said he was there. He reveals he knows there was another officer there who also came down on Price, who is totally missing from the incident reports. You look kind of surprised, but that's a fact. Um, officer Luna was there. Okay. Okay. That's what he said. 
I'm not telling you what I did. I know, but I'm telling you that Officer Linden was there too. You're you're saying that nobody else was there. So no, he said he didn't know. Okay, so I'm going to object to your representation. You're going to object. It's fine. That's Pacheco's lawyer jumping in. So um, during the escort, Officer Luna. Do you recall now him being there? No. I was focused on the inmate. Well, he he walked with you. But I wasn't focused on what's behind me, though. I, I'm not saying you weren't focused or anything. Can we take okay. a break, please? Yeah, you can take a break. The time is uh, 15.03 hours. Taking a break. They come back from the break, and still Pacheco tries to say, well, he didn't see the other officer or he doesn't remember... And a little later, Bolden's internal affairs colleague, who's been quiet for most of the interview, steps in. I can tell the pressure's on you. All you really have left to do right now is just to, to tell the truth. Because it gets worse. It does get worse with the information that we're going to share with you. Finally, an hour and 30 minutes into the interview, this happens. So uh, during the break, did you have a chance to kind of think things over? Um, yes. Okay. So what, what's, what, what changed? Luna was there. Pacheco admits the truth. Officer Luna was also there. Why don't you just straight up and say he was there? Just, just a dirtbag, I guess. Who? Me. I don't think you're a dirtbag. I think you, may, you probably made a, a wrong decision, okay? And that happens. And the, we're, that's why we're here to kind of clarify and get, get the truth. Pacheco doesn't say he stepped on Price's shackles, but he does say that they took him down. And then that's when we went forward and dumped him. Okay, and you said we dumped him. Who dumped him down? Me and apparently Luna. How is it apparently Luna? He's on top of him. Other officers confirmed that dumping someone is taking them to the ground. No one said they slammed Price's face a second time. But Special Agent Bolden isn't just interested in what they did during the incident. He also has questions about what they did afterwards. I know it's a cover-up. I know everyone talked. I got everyone's emails. And I know all the reports went back and forth to one main person. All the information I provided you was straight facts. I'm telling you straight up. I'm looking at you at your face. I'm not, I'm not here to lie to you. I'm not here to play a joke. I'm not here to play a game. I was, I was pretty straightforward with you. Bolden reveals, over their year-long investigation, they'd gotten search warrants of officers' phones and searched their departmental emails and found that after the incident, officers coordinated a cover-up. Investigators found multiple versions of the officers' reports. The sergeant on duty actually changed their reports and removed details about Price saying he didn't want to make the cell move. Did you ask her um, why... It wasn't needed about the information no, I didn't that know. she revised and took off. I didn't question it. She's a supervisor. Okay. So I just signed it and I was happy with it. And finally, the investigator confronts Pacheco with text messages that he sent. They say, quote, it's all about how you write your report and your partners have your back. As the interview comes to a close, Pacheco's voice sounds subdued and almost strangled. This report, yes, is incorrect. This is a rare moment, an officer admitting his reports were false. Okay. Looking back at this report and what was done, was it wrong? Yes. How do you feel about it now? They're back. 
Again, Pacheco calls himself a dirtbag. Did we, during this investigation, did we treat you okay? Or fairly? Treat me fairly. Okay. At a closing, is there anything that you would like to include? Sorry all this happened. That wasn't my intention. I had no intention of, I guess, for him dying, you know? Right. Never planned for that, you know? So I'm just sorry, and sorry to everybody. Pacheco and his partner, along with three other officers, and the sergeant who changed the reports, were all fired for violating policy, including using excessive force or lying about the incident. Pacheco and his sergeant were also referred to the district attorney for potential criminal charges. She couldn't use the interviews you just heard, but the other stuff, text messages and altered reports, was fair game. However, she declined to prosecute, saying there wasn't enough evidence to secure a homicide conviction. But it turned out another agency did think there might be evidence of a crime. The FBI. Hey there, I'm Stephen Rascone, a producer for On Our Watch. I've been working on this show for almost two years, but you should know that Suki and Julie and others on this team have been at it for much longer because these are stories that have to be told, institutions that need to be held to account. But that takes time, effort, energy. So we're asking for your help to keep pushing and pulling on the threads of the story and so many others. If you value this work, if you value what we've uncovered with On Our Watch New Folsom, please consider donating to KQED at donate.kqed.org. That's donate.kqed.org. Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. The FBI investigation into Arturo Pacheco and the other officers involved in the death of Ronnie Price took years. But finally, in October 2022, in a federal courtroom in Sacramento, he was called to account. Walk me through arriving at the courthouse. What happened? Who'd you see? What stood out? Well, Pacheco's family filled the entire courtroom practically. Pacheco had pleaded guilty to falsifying records in a federal investigation and depriving Price of his civil rights under color of law. This means he used his authority as an officer to unlawfully injure Price. My co-reporter Julie and producer Stephen Rascone attended this hearing where Pacheco would find out his sentence. He looked very um, crisp, clean. He was wearing this crisp blue linen shirt and dark slacks. Ronnie Price's family was there, too. The nephew of Ronnie Price, you know, he wanted to speak. He wanted to read his victim's statement. The judge was like, well, I have it in writing. I don't need you to present it. And he's like, well, I want to, you know, I want, I want him to hear this, him meaning Pacheco. 
To prepare this statement has been tremendously difficult and painful. My mom and I cried heavily before we started to write this. We had come to the sense and reality that Ronnie would not be coming home from prison. We couldn't record in court, but Price's nephew, Takis Tucker, read his victim impact statement for us later. It is difficult because even though Ronnie may have been a felon and was incarcerated, we never would have imagined that a peace officer who was ordered to monitor and protect would be the cause of Ronnie's death. We have suffered. It's like an empty space that lays on our heart. It is sad to know that he is dead. He had a calm demeanor, and it would take an awful lot to get him beside himself. Ronnie was funny. He had a sense of humor, and he loved hard candies. I remember a time after his release, he wanted to go with the family and listen to his favorite singer, Sade. He was determined to manage his business and get things done whether he was in jail or not. Ronnie was relaxed and a good person, and he loved his family. We will miss him. According to Takis, even while that whole investigation was going on, neither CDCR nor the FBI told Price's family exactly how or why he had died. A lawsuit filed by the Price family says that Steele is the one who called Price's sister to say that Price was dead. But it alleges in that phone call he said that Price's cellmate caused his injuries. We can't confirm that this call happened, but it doesn't make sense that Steele would cover up the incident because he didn't just take Price's statement. He also attended his autopsy, and he told prison officials he believed officers were responsible for Price's death. But one way or another, according to Price's nephew, the family didn't know that officers were to blame until six years later in 2022, when Pacheco pled guilty for his role in Price's death. At the sentencing hearing, Julie tells me Pacheco also spoke. The judge asked Pacheco if he had anything to say for himself. And he said, um, said I very remorseful. I apologize. It was very short and he choked up in the middle. And that's all he said. Then it was time for the judge to issue his sentence. And the judge said this is a very difficult decision for the court. Twelve years in federal prison. When the judge said he was going to be sentenced to, you know, 12, over 12 years, um, it was the daughters, I believe, who started weeping, you know, and his wife, of course, just looked stricken. The lawsuit filed by Price's family is ongoing. Pacheco's partner also took a plea deal. She was sentenced to two years in federal prison, but her lawyer said she's currently serving her time in transitional housing rather than in federal prison. Their supervisor, the sergeant who altered their reports, was convicted of conspiracy and falsifying records in a federal investigation. She is set to be sentenced on March 18th. At that supervisor's trial in December 2023, prosecutors played the video of Sergeant Kevin Steele standing at Price's bedside taking his testimony. Without that recording, it is unlikely anyone would ever know what happened to Price. He died the next day. Without that recording, only the officer's version of the story would have survived. But as the video played in court, no mention was made that the man who made this video, and so many others like it, was no longer alive. Because Steele did not survive to see that justice was served in this case. He died by suicide, about a year before Pacheco's sentencing, on August 20th, 2021. 
A couple days after Joel Uribe gave me his mom's phone number, I called her back. It was dark outside after 7 o'clock at night, and I was sitting in my home office with the phone plugged into my recorder. Hello. Hi, Ms. Lopez. Yeah, now I'm home. I was just coming from work. Yeah. All right. The fact that Sergeant Kevin Steele had spoken to her and stayed in touch with her seemed like another important clue about who Steele had been. Okay, so your son gave me your phone number, and is it okay if I record this conversation? Oh, yeah. That's okay? Okay, thank you. Juana Lopez immediately struck me as an impressive woman. She's an audit inspector, and she loves her son fiercely. But she's also a hard ass. When he went to prison, she told him, I am not going to play around. One tattoo goes on your face. I will stand strong on my word. I will not come and see you. And the reason is because you don't know how much you're hurting me. Joel didn't listen. Lots of people get face tattoos in prison. Oh no, I am not a joke. I am your mother. She hasn't seen his face in over 12 years, but they're still close. They talk on the phone all the time. And after he wound up in the hospital, she says they filed a lawsuit, but it hasn't gone anywhere. No, and it is very, very frustrating. Very frustrating. The only good thing that kept me going, there was this officer. His name is Mr. Steele. I would keep kept with him, but um, I haven't called him lately. It's usually a, a Christmas, you know, Merry Christmas, or how you doing? How's Joel doing? If it wasn't for him, my son wouldn't be alive today. Really? Wow. Mm-hmm. He was the one that uh, seek medical attention for him. I think he was one of the reasons that he helped him transfer. Oh, he helped him go to a different facility? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm very appreciative of Mr. Steele. I realize as she's talking that Juana doesn't know yet that Steele passed away. Did you hear that he had died? Who? Mr. Steele. No. Yeah. I'm really sorry to be telling you that. They, they, uh, that's our foul play. Foul play, honestly. And I was, uh, oh, wow. Yeah. She immediately suspects that he was killed. But I have to tell her that seven months after he moved to Missouri, he actually took his own life. He, um... Um, he, he committed suicide, they say. No, 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 he was a very sharp, he was very, very, uh uh-uh, I cannot accept that. I cannot accept that, none. I mean, I knew him, talking to him like I'm talking to you. Yeah. But with him, I felt a comfort. He goes, no, Ms. Lopez, you don't worry about your son. I am here. I am here. Oh, wow. Um, I'm really sorry. I, I had Oh, wow. I had told your son. I thought he might, oh. might have already told you. I'm really sorry to be giving you this information in this way. Oh, wow. He was, he was a true officer. When did this happen? Um, about a year ago. Uh, oh wow! Uh, uh, 
Oh, I remember all the torment he went through. Yeah. Oh, wow. They took a little angel. So please get to the bottom of this. Everybody needs justice, especially him. I will do my best. Okay, you have a good night. And you I'm too. Gonna, I'll stay in touch. Okay, stay and, in touch. Sounds good. Oh, Thank you so okay. much. You're welcome. Bye. Coming up next time, Val Sr. tells us about the project Steele was working on when he died. How to Kill a Cop. That's the name of his book? The title is How to Kill a Cop. I'm assuming it would be like, this is how you demoralize a cop. This is how you undermine. This is the pattern. And finally, we learn what was in the black drug bindle that Mimi found in their home when they were ripping out the carpets after Valentino died. Did you share the email? I am just sending it to you now. I have not opened it yet. Thank you. And we finally get in touch with someone who was close to Sergeant Steele. His big question for me was, which side of the blue line are you on? You're listening to On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom, from KQED. If you have any tips or feedback about the series, you can email us at onourwatch at kqed.org. You can also leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. The series is reported by me, Suki Lewis, and Julie Small. It's edited by Victoria Mauleon. It's produced and scored by Stephen Rascone and Chris Agusa. Sound design and mixing by Tarek Fuda. Jen Chien is KQED's director of podcasts and executive produced the series. Meticulous fact-checking by Mark Betancourt. Additional research by Laura Fitzgerald and Kathleen Quinn, students in the investigative reporting program at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. Special thanks to Rasan Thomas of Ear Hustle, Sandia Dirks of NPR, KQED health correspondent April Domboski, and to our in-house counsel, Rebecca Hopkins. Original music by Ramtin Arablui, including our theme song. Additional music from APM Music and Audio Network. We got tremendous support from David Barstow, chair of the investigative reporting program at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism, and graduate students Elizabeth Santos, Kayla Mahalovich, Julieta Bisharian, William Jenkins, Arman Olia, Vera Watt, and Junyao Young. Thanks also to UC Berkeley's Jeremy Rue, Amanda Glazer, and Olivia Chu for their data analysis. The internal records highlighted in this podcast were obtained as part of the California Reporting Project. Funding for On Our Watch is provided in part by Arnold Ventures and the California Endowment. Thank you to our managing editor of News and Enterprise, Otis R. Taylor Jr., Ethan Toven Lindsay, our vice president of news, and KQED chief content officer Holly Kernan. Thanks for listening. 
Hey, I'm Chris Agusa, producer for On Our Watch. And I'm Stephen Rascone, also a producer for On Our Watch. And we wanted to let you know about another podcast we think you should check out, Ear Hustle. Stephen, are you a listener? I am, actually. I've been listening to Ear Hustle for a while now, and honestly, it's got some real intense stories. What really drew me in was that the stories that are being told are by the people who are incarcerated in those prisons. Chris... What do you think about the show here, Hustle? It really opened my eyes when I started listening to what life is really like on the inside. It's so different from other representations of prison life that you see in media. Yeah, and they've been going at it for 13 seasons. Some of the best reporting and storytelling and podcasting today, in my opinion. Yes, and season 13 is out now. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 